welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. I'm Christina Suzuma, and this is episode four with our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Wilman. Hello, Glenn. How are you? Greetings, Christina and Segovia, and greetings to everyone listening today. Welcome to Magical Medical Tour. I'm Dr. Glenn Wallman, and I'll be your medical guide as we travel through the healthcare galaxy each week, exploring ways of achieving optimal health. <laughs> when I was growing up, I saw a lot of my relatives and friends, elderly people, usually had some kind of a, a syndrome going on that they were overweight, bent over, had joint pains and swelling and redness, and were always having some kind of a wrap around an elbow or a wrist. And they always use the word rheumatism. And when I was in medical school, I never heard that word, uh, except from patients. Uh, none of the physicians used it. And it turns out that it became a colloquial word, and medicine does not use that. But it goes back to the day. And the day that I'm speaking about is back in about 400 BCE, when Hippocrates was setting up his clinics and trying to take care of the Greeks and uh, all of the travelers that came to Greece. And he noticed uh, that there were a certain group of people that had these similar functions of being overweight with joints swollen and tender and in a lot of pain. And in his theories, he believed that there were humors flowing through the body. And the word rheumatism comes from the root rheuma, which means to flow like a river or a stream. And he believed that different humors flowed through the body. And that's what gave us our temperament and our being and our health and our illness. And in this particular case, he felt that this flow of fluid coming from the brain would drip down into specific joints causing swelling and deformity and pain and redness, etc. But today, that word is called rheumatology, or that's the study of rheumatology, which is uh, consistent with the specialty in medicine looking at connective tissue disorders, um, joints, ligaments, tendons, muscles, sometimes the bones in osteoporosis, for example, and the blood vessels like vasculitis, we've heard of many of these diseases, gout, systemic lupus, erythematosus, rheumatoid arthritis, all of those go under the purview of rheumatology. And today I'm very happy to have as my special guest a colleague and friend, Dr. Timothy Spiegel, who very interestingly is a professor at USC in Southern California, but also he is an editor and publishes a magazine out of UCLA Medical School on rheumatology. So I would like to have the honor of welcoming to all of our listeners, Dr. Timothy Spiegel. Hello, oh, Dr. Spiegel. Good morning. Good morning. I'm, glad, I'm pleased to be here. Do, do we dare ask you which uh, football team you root for? <laughs> um, yeah, well, at, at the current time, I'm rooting for USC. Uh, okay. But uh, what I am is uh, I'm a clinical faculty member at USC because uh, Cottage Hospital has an affiliation with USC, and I did my rheumatology training at UCLA. 
So I support both teams. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> Tim, let's. I always like to find out uh, the personal parts of my guests, and I'm always interested in knowing what brought you into the healing arts, and how old were you when you first got interested? Um, I'm a, a second-generation immigrant and went to high school in a very uh, small community. What I recognized in that small community was the doctor was some someone who people trusted. Um, and I think because of that and making good grades, um, I focused upon a healing art that combined the intellectual qualities of, of the medicine. I see. When did you, in medical school, decide to go into the specialty of rheumatology? I remember rheumatology, when I was in medical school, it was not that big a field. And although uh, since the beginning of us walking on the earth, we've probably had rheumatological and joint problems, uh, it only seemed to burgeon as a field in the last uh, few decades. Is that correct? I think that's true. The The interesting thing about rheumatology is we've been around as a subspecialty maybe 50 or 60 years, but rheumatism has roots going very far back. As a matter of fact, I recently I reviewed some information about gout, and gout was probably identified in by the ancient Egyptians. Um, gout being a process of inflammation of the great toe typically, but it was recognized even then, and treatment with colchicine was started in ancient Egypt, it was handed down to the Greeks, and we still use the same treatment right now. My first interest, my first recognition of rheumatology was actually at age 13. Um, I had a cousin, Judy, who developed juvenile rheumatoid arthritis at age 13. She and I are a month apart in birthdays, and from that very first time, I, I, I was more interested in what goes on how one develops this process called rheumatoid arthritis, juvenile. Uh, and and there, there, there was just a, a person who struck me as a, a great mentor in my uh, internship and residency. And so I just developed more knowledge about rheumatology. But, but based on, I think, the interest and knowledge of you know, there is a genetic link, my cousin who was my age at 13 developed it. And mm -hmm. so it always was had a great interest to me. So give give our listeners an idea of the things that you see in your clinical practice so they can uh, relate to some of them. I'm sure each of them have heard things or have suffered from certain things, like you mentioned gout. But just give everyone a, a kind of an overview of the different types of things that you see and treat. I've thought about this many times, and I think if it were not for pain, there wouldn't be rheumatology. So what we really see in rheumatology is pain. Now, the pain can be one joint or it can be multiple joints. It can be the soft tissues. It can be shoulders. Um, but, but pain really is what drives uh, most individuals to see a rheumatologist. The pain may be isolated. It may be acute. It may be chronic. But our goal is to try to reduce pain and maximize function uh, for each individual. 
Um, and, and so what I see is I see people who come uh, to rheumatologists for pain syndromes. Uh, you talked about rheumatism. We don't use that term very much, but we have one term called polymyalgia rheumatica, which means pain in many muscles. It's one of the few diseases that carries with it that term rheumatism. But we do see that as a, a systemic illness, and by systemic illness, I mean a pain that goes all over the body, usually in the hips and shoulders, but it can be acute. Uh, and so pain really is what drives people to a rheumatologist. Some of the uh, things that uh, people have today are we're finding more and more about causes of these things. So what have we, when we spoke about Hippocrates at the beginning, and he felt, based on the on the root word ruma, it was a flow of a humor from the brain that would slowly drip into joints and cause all the disfigurations and everything. And these humors that flowed around were also similar to different types of of things that other ancient healing systems uh, looked at. Uh, the Chinese looked at a flow of chi. The Hindus looked at a flow of the breath and prana. Number of others. They all seem to have flow. Where have we come, and how far have we come from the process of thinking this is about flow to where we are today? What's new in rheumatology today? The flow of the uh, humors we look at as part of the immune system, the immune system that drives us, that communicates cell to cell throughout our body. So what I would say in terms of uh, trying to make an uh, equivalent statement is that the immune system is fascinating and more is learned every day. But the, the immune system driving our body's communication from cell to cell is similar to what might have been thought of two to 3,000 years ago as the flow. Um, the immune system is uh, unbelievably complicated. Um, it's impressive because it, it extends throughout the body. It extends with communication through the brain, but to our muscles, and our bones, and our joints. And so I think of that flow much like I think of the of complexity of the immune system. Speaking about the immune system, uh, it seems like we know the immune system is a very complex system. I spoke about it during the uh, uh, yoga conference this year in my talk on the science and art of healing. Uh, and what I'm curious about is what can we do as a species to help our immune system. We're seeing more and more things with autoimmune diseases where our system turns on us. Is there anything out there that we can do before this happens, especially if, if we have some kind of a genetic disorder in our family? Is there anything we can do to boost our immune system and protect it? Um, the the uh, process called autoimmune means uh, the the body has an auto, meaning self, directed immune system, which we think goes aberrant, which has a, a bad feedback loop. Something's giving direction to this immune system that creates illnesses that we really don't want. Uh, the most common immune diseases or autoimmune diseases that we do talk and think about 
are processes like rheumatoid arthritis, like uh, systemic lupus erythematosus, uh, and vasculitis. We would love to find a product that helped stimulate the immune system. If you look extensively and read newspapers, there are so many immune stimulants, immune boosters. The process is at present, nobody knows how to stimulate the immune system. There's not a product that, um, that is guaranteed to stimulate the immune system. And despite advertising, there is, is not something that most scientists believe stimulate the immune system. We would love to find something that helps control and protect the immune system. But to date, there's no evidence-based medicine that tells me what to use. When I, when I look at evidence-based medicine, which is very important to me, I, I believe in it. And I know the studies of the immune system and all the boosters. Maybe we're doing some first-stage studies where we can see some correlations in, in increasing a number of a certain part of the immune system. But we haven't been able to take it the studies to the test where actually even increasing numbers does something else. But in in my practice, and I wonder in your practice, a lot of people don't always listen to the science and the medicine and evidence base. They listen to their friend and neighbor or relative who has some concoction for them. And they try that concoction for their joint pain or or their skin disorder, and sometimes it works. So do you ever get exposed to people like that, your, your clients or patients that tell you about these concoctions? And if you do, how do you work with them when they, when they want to continue to use them? I think it's a really important issue. And, and what I believe is, is we as human beings want to control as much as we can control for ourselves. We want to try to figure out our own remedies uh, we want to try to uh, uh, to help ourselves. And I think that's a really driving force in most of my patients. Uh, everyone wants to do what they can do to help themselves. Um, some of the uh, immune stimulants, they do have scientific merit. There's no question about that. Um, others don't have as much scientific merit, but uh, almost every patient I know takes nutritional supplements. They do have practices that they use and find beneficial. I encourage them to find those uh, practices and find those products. Um, I try to incorporate in that risk management features. There have been some uh, products that have had side effects and, and have created uh, bad things. But, but again, everyone wants to have as much control as, as we can. We don't want to give that control to a physician. Now, myself, I'm, I'm a patient too, and I want to have as much I guess, say and interest and focus on helping myself. And so I, I encourage patients to try to, to read, to look, to get back to me if there's something that they find beneficial. Um, again, evidence-based medicine can only go so far. And uh, I think we do have to live uh, with uh, patients' perceptions of what makes them better. And that's sometimes great. When somebody starts getting – that was a great answer, by the way. Thank you. Uh, yes, because part of part of the uh, importance, I believe, and mission of this particular show is to give people a lot of uh, information so that they can become proactive in their own health. So I appreciate uh, that. 
when we're talking about people now, it seems like it starts out where they get some kind of a joint problem and then it goes away because they did a few things and then it comes back and then they have a few more things going on. When when is the time that they should consider seeing someone like you? Is it usually through a primary care doctor that they would end up seeing you or when should they think in their own minds to become a little more proactive and see a rheumatologist? What kind of things, aside from the pain that you spoke of earlier, any other things that we should look for? I think another important thing and, and something I've done studies and looked at over my life is a function. Function is a, is a global quality. It, it's, it's, a, it's a process of somebody being able to live their life as fully as they can. We all have pain, but when that pain starts a reducing function, reducing the ability to walk, to run, to play tennis, to play golf, uh, reducing their interaction with uh, friends and family, or reducing their ability to work. All of those those changes uh, suggest not only pain, but pain that's to a point of, of changing their individual activities. It changes who they are. It changes their interaction with family members. If you have constant pain, you're not going to be able to communicate as well with your spouse. You're not going to be able to interact with your children. So one of the important things about pain is we all have aches and pains, but the important thing is when function, when activity is reduced. So I think that's a really driving feature, and I would suggest evaluation when pain uh, interacted with function uh, and fun. Definitely fun. Yeah, we Definitely want to include fun. fun in life. It's really important, Glenn. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I was thinking uh, a lot of times when I think of the different specialists and specialties of of what they have to deal with. And I, I was thinking of doctors, oncologists that deal with cancer patients. And many of those patients uh, become terminal at some point. And that is, that is the group of patients that the oncologists see or the neurosurgeons that are seeing people with brain disorders and and those are terminal and i and i thought for a few minutes how sad that was but then i started thinking about what you do and in a way it came to a point where at least the others were terminal yours the people that you see sometimes have these problems for long periods of time and it does affect their life and their function and their fun and that's why it's even more important that people like you are out there when we uh when we have the pleasure of being in a family that has genetics and we see that a uh, a mother or a sister or someone has some genetic disorder, let's take rheumatoid arthritis, for example, to use. When you see that someone in the family or a few people in the family have something like that and you start thinking, well, I don't have any joint pain, I feel okay right now but I'm also not the age that they were when they got it. Is there anything that people can do, even if they're genetically inclined to a specific type of disease to prevent it? I know that we look now, we're looking at epigenetics and genomes and gene therapies where we can actually switch genes on and off. What do you talk to clients and patients about to possibly prevent the genetic disorder? 
at present, there is one specific diagnosis in rheumatology that we can be, be very helpful on. Um, I, I, I thought about that process. The, the issue sometimes genetically and something that is, I think, important for people to know is a condition called hemochromatosis. I don't know if you're familiar with that process. Uh, for yes. what, what the process is, it's a process of iron deposition. Iron, too much iron gets in the body. It is a very common genetic abnormality. Perhaps 10% of the American population has this abnormality. And what hemochromatosis is, for, for me as a rheumatologist, patients present with joint pain, hand pain, sometimes um, large joint knee pain, things like that. The process is one of iron uh, getting into the body at a rate that we don't want it to get in, and then it just deposits, and it deposits in and around joints and in and around cartilage. Because it's such a common genetic abnormality, I try to evaluate uh, on many patients who present with atypical arthritis. Um, men develop it sometimes in their 40s and 50s. Women, because of menses, will develop it in, in their 50s and 60s. But that's a real common, not common genetically, uh, yes, clinically not as common. But it's one of those processes that uh, is important because we can change that, and we change it by phlebotomy, by drawing iron out of the body and maintaining the right levels of iron in the system. So that's a real uh, important process that's genetically quite common, um, hard to find, and uh, can mimic other diseases. So, so that's one very important process, hemochromatosis resulting in iron deposition. Uh, rheumatoid arthritis has no known cause presently. It's an incredibly important uh, diagnosis, and it does run in families. A parent and a child, I see many times a parent and a child. I have multiple family members. I have sometimes two, occasionally a third generation, but two generations having the same process. I don't know how to prevent rheumatoid arthritis in the offspring. Uh, systemic lupus erythematosus, again, a process that has a, has a family link. The anti-nuclear antibody is very common in SLE, and families run a higher anti-nuclear antibody. Again, I don't know how to prevent uh, illness in a gener second generation. There's another process. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I want to hear this uh, other process. The other process that's uh, genetically very important is, is a process of ankylosing spondylitis. Ankylosing spondylitis has a, a gene called the B27 gene. It's present in about 8% of the American Caucasian population, and it, it is commonly associated with uh, this, the gene B27, HLA-B27. It's commonly associated with uh, ankylosing spondylitis, which is inflammation of the spine. It's associated with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis, and it's associated sometimes with inflammatory bowel disease. That is a 50% gene linkage. If a parent has that gene, approximately 50% of their children will have that gene. I don't know how to prevent illness in the offspring. When you uh, talk about this, do you discuss lifestyle with uh, your patients? In other words, proper nutrition. Do you see relationships between nutrition and any of the 
uh, arthritis, uh, you see exercise, uh, stress management, sleep, any of those as something that you propose or it makes no difference? I, I love lifestyle. And um, by lifestyle, what I mean are the things you talked about. The, the lifestyle things I, I think are really important is ideal body weight, exercise on a regular basis, uh, four times a week. doesn't have to be a vigorous exercise. It doesn't have to be sweating exercise. But I, li I like yoga. I like stretching, uh, Pilates, swimming. All of those things are important lifestyles. And again, food. I think food is... Um, Food is one of those uh, those issues that, uh, to me, is really important. Uh, I have found some people with a gluten-free diet will have reduction or elimination of arthritis. That's not scientific. It's just people try to do what they can do uh, to help themselves. And a gluten-free diet sometimes works really well with some uh, with uh, people with swelling of the wrists or swelling of the hands. Um, so. I like I like all of those things. I think a, a, an ideal body weight uh, is a great idea. Uh, one of the things, and, and stress reduction, I think is important. One of the other diagnoses in which sleep is incredibly important is fibromyalgia. You described fibromyalgia. You talked about it earlier. But fibromyalgia is a process in which there's chronic diffuse pain. Poor sleep is, seems to be a very common associated process. And fibromyalgia, if you if you read and talk to doctors, some doctors know it doesn't exist. Some doctors believe it completely exists in everyone. There's a wide variety of opinions. There's a lot of opinions about fibromyalgia. But the one thing I can say is sleep is incredibly important. Um, the, the, the thing I describe with doctors who believe or don't believe when I give lectures about fibromyalgia, I describe a condition that, um, okay, they work all day. They go home, they have a patient in the ICU, the nurse calls them and wakes them at 11 o'clock and 2 o'clock, 4 o'clock. They go back to work the next day. Guess what? They're a little grumpy. They don't think as well. If this happens two, three nights in a row, by Thursday when they wake up, they're grumpy, they can't think, they hurt all over, they're fatigued, concentration defects, cognit cognitive defects, all of those things add up to uh, poor performance, and just pain. And so I think sleep is incredibly important. I, I recommend frequently uh, focuses upon sleep. Uh, a lot of people have neck problems, and, and, and I recommend special pillows sometimes for that. But but I think in terms of the things people can do is sleep and exercise are, are really important, but sleep is incredibly important for most of our activities. It was interesting, uh, as we've all gone through medical school and internships and residencies, where we were always told that sleep wasn't that important, at least during your internship and residency, but we're finding out more and more now. And I, I'm going to have uh, one of my talks, uh, one of my guests is going to be on sleep, so we will discuss that uh, issue. Let's get into something, uh, take an example of something. Somebody comes in. And they have a family history of rheumatoid arthritis, and now they're getting some joint swelling, pains, multiple joints, uh, really feeling uncomfortable. They make their way to you, and you start doing a workup on them. And if the workup uh, 
is positive, then you go in one direction. What happens if you can't find a direction, but you, but everything seems to be saying that it is rheumatoid arthritis, but you're just not finding it? What kind of things do you do? Do you continue different workups, or do you start treating people? Um, we, we continue the workup. When, when somebody comes in with diffuse joint pain, I try to make certain nothing else is going on. So typically the labs I would get would be Pretty standard things like a, a blood count, a CBC, or a comprehensive chemistry panel. I would do a, a thyroid panel to make certain the patient doesn't have early low thyroid uh, because thyroid disease is, is an autoimmune disease. But then the more specific laboratory tests uh, we get are tests uh, for rheumatoid arthritis and inflammation. We do have a new test for rheumatoid arthritis that's more specific, and that's called a CCP. Uh, the CCP is quite special uh, for rheumatoid arthritis. If the CCP is positive, we feel quite strongly that the condition might be uh, early rheumatoid arthritis. It's interesting that when a patient with rheumatoid arthritis presents, they present with joint pain and swelling, and it should be of the small joints, the small knuckles uh, of the hand, the wrist, perhaps the ankle, and the balls of the feet. But there have been studies in which people have place blood in a special blood bank, and they've done it 10 years in a row. They've just gotten blood and, and stored it. Some of the patients who 10 years develop rheumatoid arthritis actually had the blood test 10 years before the disease developed. So the question is, when does a process like rheumatoid arthritis develop? When does it start? What's that initial insult, that initial change that eventually develops rheumatoid arthritis? And the answer to that is no one knows. Certainly there's genetic links, but something in the environment contributes to that. So it's a blend, and um, sometimes we can't make the diagnosis. We try to follow. We might treat with anti-inflammatory medicines, uh, but our more common medicines for seronegative or blood test negative rheumatoid arthritis would be medications like methotrexate, and we use many of the new biologic agents. Yeah, the methotrexate, more like chemotherapy that people would take for cancers, and the biologicals now are, are a new advance. But let's talk about the medications for a few minutes. When you suddenly have to put someone on these medications, they always you know, they, they are in pain, they are uncomfortable, their function is not good, as you said, and they're not having fun, but then they're offered the medications, and the medications sometimes aren't fun either. They may get rid of some of the symptoms that you were complaining of, but they have their own. How do you work with uh, your patients to have them understand the importance or combinations of therapies that you do to get them to take their medications and be better and to stay on their medications? Uh, it's a very difficult thing in rheumatology because people go, everybody goes on the internet. I mean, I come in with many patients who have already gone on the internet. They, they, they understand some of these terms. Uh, common medicine like rheumatology use is methotrexate. And if you go online and look at methotrexate, it's horrendous. Nobody would ever take it for rheumatoid arthritis. But, or for anything. Yeah, for anything. <laughs> but, but online, what they do is they include all the side effects, which are the cancer chemotherapy, the intravenous high-dose methotrexate. What we do is we know safety-wise 
is that if we use it weekly at lower dose, we don't get many of those side effects. We do get some, but we get very few. So the, the difficulty is uh, sometimes the Internet bringing together all the terrible outcomes and, and not focusing upon the, in rheumatology, the low dose we use and how relative safety it is, although we do have to get blood tests regularly. But um, that's some of the difference. And what I try to do is educate. I, I think that the, the most important thing I can do is, is have the patient a participant in this process. I do want them to understand. I do talk a lot about what the medicines good and bad are. And then I try to ask them to, to go to the Internet and look and bring questions to be the next visit so that there's some way to, uh, to educate about those margins of benefit and side effects. But the most important thing, I feel, is to, to, to make sure there's communication visit to visit. And if there's questions, to write them down. So that they get to, and to make sure that they walk out of the office with the answer. Correct. Yeah, I agree with you. So in those in the medications that we're talking about, what happens when you are working with one of your patients and they're on something and it works, it starts working really well as we expect it will. The swelling goes away and pain starting to go away and you're feeling better and life is good again. And so you keep taking it. And then you start every once in a while, someone does come up with a side effect becomes pretty miserable. Um, do you ever recommend what I call combinatorial medicine, for instance, looking for uh, supplements or looking for acupuncture or Tai Chi or Qigong or other complementary or integrative or combinatorial types of processes to help them stay on their medications and relieve side effects? I think it's a good, it's a very good idea. What I, I try to do is make certain that the side effect is not an unacceptable side effect. I mean, there are some side effects that just, that's it. You know, there's nothing going on. There's nothing I can do about that. Um, however, other times what I do is try to combine uh, exactly what you're talking about, the complementary treatment programs. I can give you the best example, prednisone. You know, prednisone is a miracle drug. I, I think we all know prednisone is a miracle drug. It, it's wonderful. Um, a no, uh, Nobel Prize was awarded in the 50s for treating rheumatoid arthritis with prednisone. But when I use the term prednisone with people, guess what? <laughs> Everybody says, oh, I know about prednisone. I'm not going to take it. So when you look at a medicine like prednisone, which to me is just a fascinating medicine, how does it work and why does it work so well? But we have a love-hate relationship with prednisone and certain diagnoses. There is no other treatment. I mean, a patient who comes in with acute rheumatoid arthritis, nothing works like prednisone. A person who comes in with polymyalgia rheumatica, which is pain in the shoulders and hip girdle, nothing works like prednisone. A patient who has giant cell arteritis, which is vasculitis involving the temporal arteries, which can result in stroke, blindness, and death, nothing works like prednisone. So what you have is a medicine that works in almost every rheumatologic patient, yet at the same time has problems in everybody who takes prednisone. Um, and and that's, that's one of those things that uh, is so difficult to balance. I mean, I do love prednisone, and I hate prednisone. And I don't even call them side effects of prednisone, because guess what? If I take prednisone, I'm going to have the same side effects. I'm going to gain weight. 
I'm going to gain those poochy cheeks. I'm going to have osteoporosis. I may have hypertension. I may have diabetes. I may get cataracts. All of those things can happen with prednisone. They're not side effects. It's just what happens with prednisone. The higher the dose, the worse the side effects. So prednisone is one of those really fascinating medicines in rheumatology. We would think that we don't need it, that it's got too many side effects, and we shouldn't use it. Yet, at the same time, it's the only medicine that works. So with prednisone, I try to use all of those other things you've talked about in terms of, of lifestyle and general exercise and complementary treatments. Chronic pain happens, and some of the, sometimes some of the complementary treatment programs with the medicine that the patient has to take because there are no alternatives uh, help to alleviate pain and let them have a more full and fun life. And when you work with your patients and sometimes they just come into you and say, okay, the prednisone is really great. I know you love it and I love it and I know you hate it and I hate it, but I, I just need to be off it for a while. Do you work with your patients to get them off it? Do you just say you can't be off it, you have to take it? Or do you consider the possibility of letting them get off it for a while and maybe thinking that at a certain time they may want to go on it again? Do you, how do you work with people that want to get off a medication like prednisone or a methotrexate? Um, prednisone, I think, is the best example. And what I try to do is I try to look at the risk and benefit ratio. There are diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, which our goal is always to get people off. Systemic lupus, lupus erythematosus, or lupus, we always try to reduce to the lowest dose we can use. Now, it depends. For joint pain, we can reduce. But for internal organ damage, like kidney problems or uh, inflammation and damage to kidneys, sometimes we cannot get a patient off prednisone, and we have to go up and down on prednisone. But if the process is just joints, we do try to get patients off prednisone, and we try to taper prednisone. Probably every day of my life, I, I, I think about upping or decreasing prednisone. And again, the goal of prednisone is to use as little as possible to control the symptoms and maintain uh, good function. So some processes, we just have to use prednisone for one to two years. Other times, we can, we can use it for a month and get off and see uh, whether the inflammation comes back or whether we're able to control it with other medicines while we taper prednisone. You know, you mentioned uh, osteoporosis, and I, although I would love to stay on the rheumatoid for a while, I think there are many people out there that are now very concerned. Everybody's talking about osteopenia and osteoporosis and bones and things like that, and I know that's partly your specialty, and I would not like to leave this hour without at least touching on it, knowing that we probably have you back four or five more times to speak on so many of these things. But let's talk about osteoporosis for a while. What's going on here? Suddenly, is it just that we know more about it? We're living longer. We have more imaging studies. It's always been around. Or there's something that we're doing to ourselves uh, that's causing this problem. I think osteoporosis is, is, again, a fascinating process. And we know that that osteoporosis is occurring uh, at a more rapid rate. We're diagnosing it earlier. And uh, one of the things that's driving this interest in osteoporosis is the new treatment programs available. 
The other thing that's driving the interest in osteoporosis is some of the complications recognized from some of those treatment programs. So it's a blend. And as we live longer, we have more and more patients who are having osteoporosis. An example, I have a patient in the hospital right now uh, who has compression fractures of her spine. Well, her diagnosis is rheumatoid arthritis, little prednisone, but she has had prednisone on and off for many years, and she's developed weakness of the bones and then compression fractures of the bones. Now, compression fractures are when the, uh, when the bone just basically collapses from weakness. Uh, so, so when you have a compression fracture of the lumbar spine, uh, or worse, is the hip fracture. I think people recognize that uh, sometimes when you fall, you break a hip and that leads to bad things. Sometimes what happens is the hip is so weak that when you stand and walk, the hip actually fractures, and then you fall. So one of the interesting things is which came first, the fracture and fall or the fall and the fracture. But with osteoporosis, I think one of the most important things are the calcium and vitamin D and parathyroid levels. What, what currently the belief is is that we have to be very careful about vitamin D. And I think what's received a lot of press, a lot of publication, a lot of interest, including doctors, is vitamin D. Many times now, um, I get vitamin D on, on, on many patients because, because vitamin D is the balance of the calcium, vitamin D, and parathyroid uh, glands. So, so we have this this triangulation of these three working together. And if the vitamin D level is low, the PTH, the parathyroid hormone, goes up. And the PTH level goes up and it takes calcium from any place it can get it. It takes it from the GI tract, reduces the excretion in the kidneys, but most importantly, PTH takes calcium from the bone. And as it takes calcium from the bone, it weakens the bone. So Vitamin D is a very important feature. What, what do all the dermatologists say right now in terms of sun and our worship of the sun? What are they saying? Wear sunblock. Well, they want us to protect ourselves. <laughs> Cover up. Green Wear sunblock. Wear right. hats. Long sleeve shirts. So we, we feel there may be a, a, a much higher incidence of vitamin D. And I think that's really something important that all people can do. You, could, you can look at that vitamin D. You can actually get this quite easily measured by your physician. Yeah, the value should be above 30 uh, for vitamin D. And there's nutritional supplements extensively uh, at health food stores and pharmacies about vitamin D. So vitamin D turns out to be really important in the uh, metabolism of uh, calcium, uh, calcium absorption and uh, and the parathyroid glands, which hide behind the thyroid. So, vitamin D is something really important that people can control themselves. Uh, vitamin D uh, actually works almost like a hormone, I think, yes. in that whole process of the parathyroids and the and the calcium. People are going to pharmacies now or to uh, vitamin stores, and, and everybody is now. Taking vitamin D3. Do you have any theories or thoughts on the vitamin D type D3. we should be taking? I think vitamin D3 is a very appropriate vitamin uh, to take. What what we do recommend we, we recommend calcium 
And we recommend calcium citrate for the most part. Calcium citrate is uh, well absorbed, and we do include calcium citrate with vitamin D. It comes in 400 internet. That's the most common tablet. A calcium 600 milligrams and vitamin D 400 international units. But now in many stores, there's vitamin D 1000, there's vitamin D 2000, and we have available as a prescription vitamin D 50,000. So we use 50,000 units um, every week for three months and see if we can't get the vitamin D level to the right le uh, the right level so that we can reduce the um, PTH and reduce some of that bone wasting uh, features. Uh, we do have new treatments uh, for osteoporosis. The most important thing is weight-bearing. And by weight-bearing, what, what, what we mean is just walking. I mean, you don't need to carry a backpack, but just walking. Walk, walking strengthens the bones. And, and because of just standing and just that weight coming down, the vertebral bodies strengthen. Other exercises are great, but bicycling, it doesn't help prevent osteoporosis. Swimming, a wonderful exercise, but doesn't help protect osteoporosis. So my exercise programs that I recommend include walking, I, 40, 30, 30, 45 minutes, uh, three or four times a week. That's great for osteoporosis prevention. The other things that I recommend are aerobic exercises. And that can be uh, bicycling, it could be running, it could be aerobics, it could, and, and again, exercise has to be fun. That's that's one of the um, one of the one of, one of the really important features features that I, I believe are important. One of the things that many of our patients, my patients have, and I, I love. I think dog is a human being's best friend. But again, the most important thing for me is folks take that dog for a walk, and that's great for osteoporosis prevention. So I would say, if you want to get a dog, get a dog for osteoporosis prevention. That's probably not a standard thought, but uh, it works. That's a great idea. I, I do want to mention, though, that I know a lot of times people think if this is good, then taking lots of it only has to be better. And when you mentioned 50,000 units of vitamin D, uh, you did mention that that was a prescription. But I want to make sure that everybody kind of knows that, especially in vitamins, uh, taking a certain amount, a daily requirement, good. but it doesn't mean that if you take many, 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 many more, it will be better for you. Sometimes we uh, have diseases that are caused by increase in certain vitamins. So mm -hmm. I just wanted to be careful about that. Uh, I can I can tell you exactly uh, what we write. We write uh, uh, for uh, we write vitamin D fifty thousand once a week for three months. So it's only twelve tablets, uh, and it's only twelve tablets. So. I, I do want to make that very clear. Three months, then get the vitamin D checked again and go down to the a lower level. I try not to use vitamin D uh, for any length of time. Three months seems to be about the right amount to get that vitamin D up and then just maintain it at a, at a more regular uh, lower amount of vitamin D. It is a prescription. You're exactly right. And, and that's typically the way we uh, write it. But again, to check the vitamin D in the bloodstream. Yeah. What's the... Um in in your field, what's the most bizarre case you've ever had? You know, I was thinking about that because uh, you, you mentioned that, that you may ask that. And so I was thinking, trying to come up with a, a, a logical and um, clever answer. But there's no clever answer to it. I mean, I've seen many different people with, with different cases. But I think the thing that that 
that combines all of it is is that one illness will mimic another illness. So mimicry is uh, what I came up with as a thought on that. Uh, it's easy if rheumatoid arthritis is rheumatoid arthritis. It's uh, but but we have processes that mimic. They look like one illness, and you you go down this pathway, and this pathway says this is what it seems like. There's nothing else going on, but then something turns out that no, it was just mimicking another illness, a more common illness. Uh, an example of that uh, is you see a patient with back pain. You get X-rays. The X-rays look like there's thinning bones, you get a bone density, which measures the quality of calcium in the bones. It's called a, a DEXA scan, dual energy x-ray absorptometry, or a BMD, a bone mineral density. The T-score on that is osteoporosis if it's less than minus 2.5, just by definition. So you walk down this pathway and you say, well, Everything fits. They have a little pain, but not too much pain. Their T-score is low. Their calcium is okay. Their vitamin D may be a little low. Let's increase vitamin D. Let's treat them with a medicine for osteoporosis or osteoporosis prevention so they don't fracture and have that curved uh, uh, a curved spine, uh, which nobody, nobody likes. Uh, so you go down that pathway, and then as that process develops, what you find out is, yes, they have osteoporosis, but the reason they have osteoporosis is they have multiple myeloma. They have an abnormal protein. They have something wrong inside the bone marrow. So I think what, what draws cases in my mind is that the one disease absolutely perfectly mimics another process. It tricks us because it, it mimics it. Another example is a condition called polymyalgia rheumatica, which is pain in the muscles and soft tissue. It's one of those few terms that rheumatism is used, polymyalgia rheumatica. So it, it's interesting. It's called PMR. It's a very common process. And the sedimentation rate is elevated. The measures of inflammation are elevated. And you walk down this pathway of low-dose prednisone secondary to PMR. But in evolution is an infection in the heart valve. So the person has an infection of the heart valve mimicking the symptoms of PMR. Uh, and so the, 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 the difficulty in medicine, some of the concerns are just when one illness mimics another illness. And it's hard sometimes to separate those. So I think... I think That's one of the great parts of medicine, I think. Oh, gosh, yes. Yeah. Uh, that's one of the things that makes it intellectually challenging. But a patient doesn't want that. They don't want to be intellectually challenged. They want the answer. <laughs> and sometimes that's true. I always uh, ask my guests based on their history and their training and their total lifetime of experience for a specific health tip that they could offer to our listeners. Is there something that you have that you've learned in your practice that you can give us? Uh, we, we've talked about the lifestyle. I think lifestyle is, is incredibly important. But 
as I was trying to be more global about thinking what you're, you're, you might ask, what I thought about is anatomy. I know that's a primitive concept, a primitive term, but as I look at and evaluate and, and examine somebody, when I touch somebody or palpate somebody, what I really am thinking about is anatomy. I'm trying to visualize what's underneath the skin, what these body parts are. And, and it goes back actually to the first day of medical school in a way because anatomy is so important for me as a rheumatologist and for many physicians. And what I would encourage people to do is, is know something about their anatomy. Know where, where a pain is or what body part. Anatomic texts are online. But, but for docs, it's really important to think about what this is or where it is. And, and we, we almost, I mean, with MRIs, we almost have 3D, but we don't get MRIs on everyone. So one of my health tips, I think, would be to be as conscious and aware of your own body, of your own anatomy as you possibly can be. It will help your doctor uh, identify where the pain is or what the next test might be. So I know it's rudimentary, but... But things do come down to anatomy, where body parts are, just as the ancient Greeks, as they were experimenting, looking at anatomy, not knowing where or how it worked together. We do know that now. But again, anatomy is so very important to try to get the best out of healthcare. Thank you. Christina. Hello, hello. I am here just absorbing all this information. Thank you so much, Dr. Siegel. Um, I mean, Rheumatoid arthritis, that, that word sort of lingers through my system and myself because when I was eight years old, they diagnosed me with rheumatoid arthritis, which my, my father almost, I think, fainted when he heard that. <laughs> I was like, my, she's just a child. What are you talking about? So it was, um, interesting that, that you said you had a cousin that, that, uh, also had it in her teens as well. Um, so, you know, and, and Glenn, I agree with you. There's so many people around us now that, that are having issues and, and things like that. Um, I just want to let our audience know, those of you who are listening, you can still uh, write your comment in uh, the box right under the screen. And uh, those of you listening online through the phone, you can actually press star two so that um, we can bring you in to ask your question if you have any. Um, Dr. Spiegel, we did have a question that came in um, uh, a ways back, and I hope this person is still listening right now. Um, it uh, The question was, going back to the special pillow for the neck, I have a pillow like that, and I wake up with terrible, hang on just a moment, uh, with terrible stiff necks. Is this something that I need to have a look at? And I feel that I should sleep without a pillow altogether. Uh, would that be... I'm just trying to get my screen here. Okay, sorry. Would that be an idea or would that lead to more stress on the neck? I think most people do well with a, a neck pillow. The, the problem with neck pillows are that sometimes they just collapse and there's no support. My beliefs are that the best sleeping is on your side, one side or the other. Uh, and if you have a partner, change sides of the bed depending upon what's more comfortable with you. But the idea of a pillow is when you lie on your side that your neck doesn't collapse to that side. The idea mm. of a pillow is to support your neck much like the, the space between your shoulder and your ear when you lie on a side. Although it can be, it can be um, uh, slight at an angle, but, but the goal is, is, a, is a supportive pillow mm. 
that doesn't collapse when laying on side. There are probably 10,000 pillows on the market. What I've recently, <laughs> yeah, they're just a lot. And, you know, we're, we're raised in this era of a down pillow, et cetera. But, but I'm, I'm more happy with some of the uh, somewhat supportive, I call them foam pillows, or I don't know mm-hmm. how one would best describe that, but a pillow that doesn't collapse a lot. Mm-hmm. Most people should not sleep on their belly. When you sleep on your belly, you have to turn your neck at a significant angle. Now, the question also was about sleeping without a pillow uh, mm-hmm. on your back. That's okay if that's comfortable to you. But again, I think a better – most people snore when they sleep on their back, and they're, they're invited to change positions and roll sideways so they don't snore. And the reason you snore is because the, the tissues in your mouth collapse. That can lead to sleep apnea. That can lead to fibromyalgia. So sleep is really important, and side, side sleeping is what I think is best, and the pillow that side sleeps best is a pillow that won't collapse a um, – a uh, 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 down pillow will almost invariably collapse. They just don't have the channels in them. So what I've done is I've, and I got one for myself uh, over the past few months, just a pillow that when I lie sideways, it doesn't collapse. It keeps my neck in that relatively straight position, but sideways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's probably belaboring the question, but I thought about it a lot and considered uh, what might be the best sleep pattern. Yes, yes. I love those foam pillows. Those memory foam pillows are wonderful. They saved my neck. <laughs> so, so you agree with me. That's great. And- uh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and also, uh, I just recently even changed my mattress because I was having, you know, issues with my, my hip and, you know, certain areas of my back, uh, you know, after giving birth to a child. And uh, I also changed to one of those memory foam beds as well. And it's amazing how it took a little while getting used to and uncomfortable, but it's also shifted my sleep apnea as well, which has been wonderful. I get more sleep now. <laughs> and, yeah, I, I agree, absolutely. And, and a less expensive is, I don't want to t- name a store. I know the store I'm thinking about, but I'm not going to say anything. But some stores have a, a two-inch pad on top of the bed, which, which I just tried to find out if I'm going to recommend it to people. I wanted to try it. And it mm-hmm. seems to work for some people. When when one lies on their side and you have pain on the lateral aspect of the of the hip, af- actually where you put your hand in your pocket, that's about the best anatomic site I can provide. Mm-hmm. That's actually bursitis of the hip. And and sometimes we inject that. I don't like to inject unless necessary. So I do recommend changes in sleep patterns, changes in exercise patterns, and stretching mm-hmm. programs. I have some stretching programs that really help with some of the uh, the pelvis. Most people don't know where the hip is anatomically. The true hip is actually in the groin. Mm-hmm. On the lateral side where you put your hand in your pocket, that's actually hip bursitis, or it might be referred pain from the back. But hip bursitis occurs where you where you put your hand in your pants pocket. That's not true hip disease. So, mm-hmm. and, the, and the memory foam pads really help that, and I think that's exactly what you were describing, weren't you, Christine? Yes, yes, absolutely. Actually, I got the whole bed. I got the whole yeah, 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 I just got the yeah. Well, the pad is cheaper. <laughs> yeah, but the whole absolutely. bed would be great. So I think yeah. they work pretty well. It's almost like the old water beds uh, of 40 years ago. Not that I remember them, but some people might. Yeah, I I do remember those water beds, but I was never comfortable <laughs> in those. It was a little too uh, wishy-washy. <laughs> so that's that's why I think some of the memory foam and 
and there's there's multiple mattresses too, but just something to protect pr prevent some of the constant pressure on some of these body parts is important. Yes, yes. Um, I've been sleeping on a water bed for most of my life, and I love it. But <laughs> I have uh, another question that came in. Uh, if do we have time for another question? Uh, on our side, we do. <laughs> Dr. Spiegel does. This is yes. about. They wanted to know if you were familiar, Dr. Spiegel, yes. with alkalinizing waters or alkalinizing diets, and whether or not they help. The person says it seems to help their joint pain when they drink alkalinizing water or change their diet to an alkaline diet. What are your thoughts on that, and what are your experiences? My experiences are that I don't know that uh, there's there's any relative benefit, proven benefit, but if a person feels better using that alkaline diet, that would be fine. We do have some specific recommendations for um, specifically for gout. I mean, gout is uh, big time right now. Gout, there's been a lot of interest in, in gout. We have new medications for gout. And because of some of the medications that are now used, like diuretics, we're having an, an, an I call it the reemergence of gout. So we're having a lot more gout. And what happens with gout, we want to get the monosodium urate crystals out of the body. We want to get uric acid and urate. We want to get it filtered through the kidneys and then excreted. So one can actually improve gout by having changes in the pH uh, and letting uh, the urine uh, dissolve those crystals and let those gout crystals uh, out of the uh, body. So we do have uh, science related to gout uh, that really does help by changes in some of the pH features and PK features of the of the uh, renal uh, of the kidney excretion. So I don't have a lot of experience or knowledge about alkalinization. Uh, there are some conditions in which it is important, but certainly with some of the features of gout and pseudogout, we do have some of those uh, benefits from changes in the pH of the uh, body, specifically because of how it affects the kidney. Gout. I, I've seen gout all my life, all around me. It's, it's pretty amazing. I, I do believe I even have three family members with it. But um, having the Asian background, it's like, you know, uh, the change in the diet is, is so important with, yeah. you know, the increase of water, no more red meat, uh, back off on the seafood. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the interesting thing, and I don't know your background, but gout is in the Philippines. And I don't know if you have Filipino background, but it's a huge number of people in the Philippines who have gout. But the mm -hmm. Asian population, including uh, Japan, China, uh, Vietnam, there's a really a high incidence of gout. And uh, mm -hmm. But the Philippines, we have a lot of Filipino uh, patients here in Southern California. We have a lot of nurses, and so I talk to the nurses. Uh, but uh, gout is just huge. Uh, uh, particularly from the Philippines, because that's the population I'm most most familiar with. And every two three weeks, I'll have a uh, individual with with um, 40 year old man with gout, and and they always have that Philippine background. Um, although all Asian populations do have an increased risk, it's just super high from the Philippines. Mm. And even when they travel to the United States and live in the United States and are born in the United States, they mm. and change diet, they still have that. Um, that uh, predisposition. So I think the issue is probably genetic. It probably deals with how gout is filtered at the kidneys, 
-hmm. but we have wonderful treatment for gout and gout prevention. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's, that's wonderful. Um, we have another question that has come in, Dr. Siegel. Um, this person says, I have a history of arthritis in my family with many knee replacement surgeries. How can I guard against probable damage? Um, it's a wonderful question because uh, knee replacements, total knee replacements, are really common. As a matter of fact, my brother had one last week. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but again, the, the biggest things I would say, again, are, are lifestyle for prevention. Um, number one, ideal body weight. Uh, number two, gentle exercises. The things that I see, um, uh, sometimes there's inflammatory disease, but most, my most common disease is osteoarthritis. Everyone has osteoarthritis. And that's damage to the cartilage. Damage to the cartilage, some of the uh, 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 injuries, of the sports injuries, tennis is a big knee chewer upper. Um, but one would say, what nutritional supplements? How can I prevent that? What might work for that? Uh, and there's uh, three products that, uh, that are used a lot. Uh, one is glucosamine. The other is chondroitin. And the third is uh, the omega-3, the fish oil. Um, mm -hmm. The glucosamine and chondroitin are heavily used. I would say probably 60% of the folks I see take nutritional supplements that help cartilage. Osteoarthritis is damage to the cartilage uh, and the uh, meniscus of the knee. It's as though there's, there is uh, not a healthy cartilage. The cartilage is not reproducing and, and healing itself. Um, what... What we would like is for glucosamine and chondroitin to be able to let those cartilage cells rebuild cartilage. And that's a huge, huge area in medicine, in orthopedics, in rheumatology. Everyone would like to find a proven substance that, that healed cartilage injuries. That's just incredibly important. To date, there have been none. Now, glucosamine and chondroitin, many people describe benefits. And for some people, I think it's wonderful. I think it's fine. Uh, what mm -hmm. we do have some science is in some of the fish oils and omega-3, I believe that they're scientifically a good choice. So I'm in, I'm in favor of, of using as a nutritional supplement um, some of the omega-3 products. Uh, glucosamine and chondroitin would be individual. If they work, they work. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. but, but studies that have been done are dealing at a, a radiographic level, not a microscopic level. And microscopic mm. level is hard to prove. People have to volunteer to have biopsies of their knee cartilage. Not too many people want to do that. Radiographs, mm -hmm. MRIs, we can get, but those small microscopic changes are what's really essential to look at how cartilage repairs itself. Very important. And again, osteoarthritis is what, what we see most of. Everyone has osteoarthritis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So do you feel that... Um, uh, Exercise, uh, you've just talked about the nutrients. Do you feel that certain exercises will, can, can that help to, to the cartilage and everything to rebuild because of the circulation that we're bringing into our bodies? Um, I don't think that exercise will help cartilage so much, but it will help support the, the, the knee. As an example, if you exercise and strengthen your knee, strengthen your quadricep muscle, your gastroc, your soleus, but again, the quadricep muscle, you will help your knees a great deal by strengthening uh, the, the muscles surrounding the knee because they will protect your knee from damage. And so muscle strengthening, bicycles are wonderful, swimming is wonderful to, to strengthen the muscles which will help support the, the knee. 
the interesting thing about cartilage, cartilage has no blood supply. That's it. it, it the, the nutrients diffuse across into the cartilage cell, which we hope will build cartilage. So cartilage doesn't have blood cells, blood vessels, because if it had blood vessels, we'd have pain, because pain fibers go along blood vessels. But what's really important is get good, strong muscles around the joints that support the joint. It's really important to be careful about recovery from a sports injury. Um, all the uh, Sunday afternoon football players, the 300-pound linebackers, the running backs, the, they're all gonna, going to have knee injuries from sports-related problems. So really important sometimes after a sports-related injury you know, to go to a, a trained physiotherapist, to go to a trainer, but just recover at the rate that's appropriate for that individual joint, whether it be the back, a hip pointer, uh, an ACL a sprain, an ankle sprain. Um, it's really important is to, is, to, is to maintain as much function and activity. If that starts changing, just, just figure out how people can uh, modify activity sometimes, sometimes have treatments, sometimes medications are not necessary, but at least uh, rheumatologists are pretty skilled in, in sort of focusing on, on some of those things that really can change and, and make a person's life a, a full life, a fully active life. Not all the time. Sometimes that's just as good as we can do. But uh, to at least give that a go, uh, do their own research, do their own homework, know a little bit about anatomy, know some of the side effects and benefits of medication, and uh, uh, and 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 uh, just try to be maintaining a great lifestyle uh, to live as fully as possible for as long as you're blessed to do so. Beautiful. Right. Well, I'm grateful to my special guest, Dr. Timothy Spiegel, for sharing uh, his wisdom and experience with us. I hope uh, you got a lot out of that. I would also like to thank all of my teachers and my healers. Uh, for helping me throughout my life. I look forward to getting together with all of you again next week on our magical medical tour as we explore another quadrant of the galaxy. <laughs> Until that time, I wish you all optimal health. Thank you very much, Dr. Timothy Spiegel. It was uh, wonderful of you to share your gifts and educate all of us on, on how to... Um, how to move forward with uh, these imbalances of, uh, that are affecting so many. Thank you so much, and we look forward to having you back again. Well, you're welcome. I, I, I thank you, and I uh, had a good time, too. Wonderful. Next time, we'll have you on visual. <laughs> oh, that's right. Well, I, I think you have a floating picture of me, but uh, Skyper I had difficulty with. <laughs> okay. Next time. We'll, we'll get you on next time. <laughs> thank you Wonderful. Very much. Thank you so much.